Hey friend, are you struggling to find consistent paid speaking gigs? Do you want to know the exact six steps that you can take to find and book more paid speaking opportunities in 2024? Well, we want to make that easy for you. We've created a new free resource with the help of Dan Irvin, one of our highly successful speakers on our team. Dan has booked over $100,000 in paid speaking gigs in the last few years, and his six-step process is going to help you maximize your chances of getting booked and paid to speak in any industry. You're going to learn how to get started prospecting, master discovery calls, and proposal emails and so much more. All you got to do is go to thespeakerlab.com slash steps and we're going to send you this 18-page guide straight to your inbox. Again, that is thespeakerlab.com slash steps and you're going to get that free guide. Hey, thanks for listening. You're awesome. Hey, what's up, my friends? Graham Baldwin here. Welcome back to the Speaker Lab podcast. So good to have you here with us today. I hope those of you who at least are in the U.S. had a good Thanksgiving last week. Can't believe we are already in the final month of the year, which again, if you look all the way back to January 1, what progress have you made in your speaking business? We've got a, a few weeks left in this year. What progress are you going to be making in 2020? on your speaking business. So uh, I'd encourage you to take action. One of the best ways to take action is through our brand new book that is coming out. We are so excited. February 18th, 2020, the book will be out called The Successful Speaker, Five Steps to Booking Gigs, Getting Paid, and Building Your Platform. We already have a bunch of pre-order bonuses put together for you just to incentivize, encourage you, including you can get, if you buy the book, you can also get the audio book for free. So you can get all the details for that over at thespeakerlab.com slash book. Again, you can find that over at thespeakerlab.com slash book. So we've got that pre-order bundle uh, available just for a little bit longer. So uh, make sure you go ahead and snag that again over at thespeakerlab.com slash book. It makes a great little uh, stocking stuffer perhaps. All right. So today we got a great conversation with Josh Linkner. Josh has been in the speaking business for a long time. He's got a lot of experience, got a lot of wisdom to share with us. We talk a, a wide range of topics. We talk about how much speaking he does. You'll be surprised. He does a lot of speaking, how he manages that, how he figured out that that was the right amount for him. One of the things we talk about is there's, there's no right or wrong amount of speaking that you can do. He does a lot of gigs, well over 100 gigs a year. And so we talk about how he landed on that. We talk about how much he charges. He's very open and honest in sharing that. And we also talk about bureaus and his relationship with bureaus, whether or not you should be working with bureaus. And we spend some time talking about speaking fees, knowing what you should set them at, how you should raise them, when you should raise them, a lot of different variables and factors that go into that. So again, wide-ranging practical conversation. I think you're going to get a lot from this. So let's jump into this conversation with Josh Linkner. Enjoy. Hey, what's up, friends? Grant Baldwin here. Welcome back to the Speaker Lab podcast. Today, joined by Josh Linkner. Josh, thanks for hanging out with us, man. We appreciate it. Truly a pleasure to be with you today. I know we were just talking a little bit beforehand. I know we we have a lot of mutual friends. This is our first time to, to cross paths in the industry. But I know you've also been in the, the industry for a long time. Give us a quick snapshot of what business looks like today. How much are you speaking? What types of groups are you speaking to? What are you speaking about? Sure. And, and as I'll continue, I'm a very transparent. I share everything in, in gory detail, but I'm a pretty high volume guy. So the most I did in one year was 163 paid keynotes. I've scaled it down a little bit, but I'm around 120 a year. My fee is 35K. So we have about a four and a half million dollar a year speaking business. Yeah. I mainly speak to large corporate audiences and associations, but also, you know, little stuff in between. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And one of the things that I'm so excited to share with, with the listeners is how big the industry is. There's so yeah. much opportunity for us all, whether you're speaking to my fee or higher or lower, there's a tons of opportunity for all of us. 
All right, so 163 down to 120, 120 is still a ridiculous, insane amount. So do you enjoy speaking that much? Because I know for a lot of people, a lot of people don't realize like how mentally and physically exhausting that actually is, you know, because it sounds like you just hop on stage, you do your thing, you go back to the room, you fly home. It's kind of, yeah, it seems pretty simple, but there is a lot to it and it is very, very tiring. So how do you keep up that pace? Well, what I do isn't necessarily for everybody, so I'm certainly not advocating that. And see, people can be very successful speakers at, at different volumes, so please don't, right. I'm not trying to be prescriptive in any way. For yeah. me, though, I like the volume. I'm kind of a deal junkie, so I like closing deals. I love the privilege to be in front of an audience. For me, I do it mostly because of impact. And so I look at it as the opportunity to serve and to leave positive change in the world. So I'm really fueled by that intrinsically. Certainly, there are days that stink, like you're at airport layover or TSA is yeah. patting you down or, you know, like there are definitely moments that are, that are difficult. But the way I look at it is I, we're, we've taken a very rigorous and scientific approach to the business of speaking. And when you break it down, if there's 12 months a year and you're doing 10 a month, okay, that's two and a half a week, but there's some peak periods. So October will be very busy, but July yeah. will be very not busy. And so, yeah, there are periods like, like an accountant has a busy tax season. You crank it out and you're tired that month. But then there are other periods, even at 120 a year, where you may have two or three weeks where you're not speaking. So it's really yeah. pretty manageable. It sounds to me worse than it is actually. Like if you're treating it like a business, right. if you're a lawyer or a, or a physician, or like you probably work more hours than, than someone who's even speaking 120, hour, 120 dates a year. Yeah. How did you land on, a, on 120 as the, as the ideal number? Because I think a lot of times, especially for people who are getting started and they're trying to think through how, many, how much speaking do I want to be doing? Because I don't know, because I don't know what 120 feels like versus I don't know what 20 feels like. And one of the nice things that you kind of alluded to as it relates to just speaking in general is there's no right or wrong amount. You know, it's going to be very subjective depending on what someone's goals are, what someone's trying to accomplish, where they're kind of stage and, and phase of life. And so there's a lot of different variables that go into it. How did you decide, you know what the right number for me at this stage of life is? is doing at least 100 or above 100. Yeah, and, and again, just can't, can't reiterate that enough. You know, we each have our own why. We each have our own, you know, economic needs and desires and passions. So, so please, no one should think like they should do this or like they can do whatever they want. In my case, we do it for a few reasons. Again, first of all, I love it. I'm a high output guy. Like I'm a 3,000 a year, hour a year guy. So even at 120 a year, I'm doing multiple other businesses. I'm sitting on boards. I'm starting companies. I've got a ton of other stuff going on. And that's just the way I'm wired. Like if I was doing less than that, it bugs me. But that, again, that's not for everybody. That's just how I am. Yeah. The other thing is that I love the energy of, I like performance. I grew up as a jazz musician. So I like being on stages. Okay. I love meeting cool people. I love learning about businesses. I'm a, a lifetime learner. So it, for me, it fuels a lot of things in my life in a really positive way. But someone else might get that same level of satisfaction doing 15 a, a year. So it, it's yeah. right or wrong. There's no right or wrong answer. Yeah. Very cool. How did you uh, first get into speaking in the, in the first place? Because I think, you know, for a lot of people, you look at, you know, 100, 120 dates and, and that obviously didn't happen over the course of a weekend or a year, but uh, that's a long journey to get from point A to point B. How did speaking first get started for you? Yeah. So my quick backstory, as I mentioned, I started my career as a jazz guitarist and I still perform. I've been playing for over 40 years. I'm actually going to play in the studio later today. So uh, I'm very passionate about music. But at age 20, I started a company and I didn't know what I was doing. I'd never taken a business course, but I, I had sort of this love of improvisation and, and I was kind of a tech geek and uh, that was a successful company. And so over the next 29 years, I've started, built and sold five tech companies, have hired thousands of employees, exited for a couple hundred million dollars, then started a venture capital fund and invested in over a hundred other startups I've written a couple books. So I've had a pretty, very fortunate history or backstory. Yeah. But to answer your question, I was speaking often as the CEO of my company. And this was at industry events and I'd get invited to speak in front of partners, et cetera. And I just loved it. Like it fueled me up. I, I felt like I was in the zone. And I realized though that I was a pretty good amateur. Like I would get very positive feedback. Oh, you were better than the outside keynote speaker. But I really, I realized I wasn't a pro. Yeah. 
So I said, all right, how do I go from being at least a good amateur to at least a bad professional? (laughs) And I took it seriously. And this is one thing that I think you and I probably agree on that, that a lot of times people don't want to put the work in. They think that speaking is easy. Like, oh, I gave a great speech at my aunt's wedding. I'm ready to be a professional keynote speaker. And I decided to treat it with the same rigor and discipline that I had in growing a a multi-hundred million dollar software business. And so I studied with a speaking coach. I watched tape. I still to this day watch tape of myself and others all the time. I studied the craft. And today I still think of myself as a student, not a master by any means. And I took it really seriously. And in addition to the stage skills, I said, how do we look at the business of speaking with the same critical eye that you look at as building a software company? So today we look at inputs and outputs. We look at utilization rates and throughput rates and, and we have predictive modeling and analytics. And so we treat it with the rigor that you would have in a real company. And so I went from having no paid speeches today, as mentioned, we're doing high volume. We get about between five and 15 inbound inquiries a day from a variety of channels, whether it's social media or or books that I've written or or our bureau partners. And so we built it into a sustainable business model. That's one of the things I just love sharing with people is not only what to do on stage, but what can you do off stage so that you get on stage at higher fees and higher volumes. Yeah. So you started speaking while you were doing the, like, it sounds like you have basically speaking life and then pre-speaking life. So a lot of the, what you're doing pre-life, when you first started speaking, it was on behalf of the company. At what point did you decide like, no, no, I want to go all in, not necessarily as wearing the company hat, but wearing the Josh Linkner hat. Did you make like a conscious shift there or is it just, I'm just speaking a lot and you know, it, it just kind of evolves over time. Excellent question. I made a conscious shift. And I think if you want to do something at a world-class level, whatever that is, whether you're going to be a swimmer or a landscape architect or, you know, or whatever you're going to do, you have to really be all in on it. And so in my case, I, after 11 years as the CEO of my company, I decided to move to a chairman role. I hired an outside CEO and I took thought leadership very seriously. So I, I, that's when I started working on a book and started building a brand to a degree of my own. So that was a, you know, a deliberate, thoughtful you know, a lot, of, a lot of scraped knees, by the way. It's not always a, a clean and easy route. But no, I took it seriously. And to this day, I still, it's funny, like we're in a business that appears fun and appears easy. Yeah. And, and just like when you watch a great musical artist, it right. looks easy because they practice and do all the hard work behind it to make it look easy. Yeah. And so while we're in a fun business, I treat it with, with a lot of seriousness behind the scenes. So one of the things that you touched on, the thing that kind of was a mental shift for you was taking it more seriously from going from amateur to professional. How did you have the self-awareness to recognize that I'm okay, I'm good enough, but I can certainly, there's more meat on the bone. I can certainly get better. How did you have that self-awareness? Well, I think a lot of it is just taking a hard look in the mirror and being honest with yourself. And then also looking at those that we admire. You know, when I looked at myself and I watched Sir Ken Robinson give his TED talk, I realized like, there's a big gap there. Sir Ken Robinson is a 10 and I'm like a two. So how do I at least get to a three? And so I started benchmarking myself against my heroes and and realized that there's a lot of room for growth. And today still tons of room for growth. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything that you're doing that you continually to do? Because there, there is a kind of that balance of like staying motivated, staying hungry, but also not being complacent, not saying content of just like, you know what, where I am right now is really good. Like this is a good spot in my career. I could continue to stay here and do just fine. But what is it that continues to push you or drive you to get better as a speaker and to continue to, to build and evolve as a speaker? There's a wonderful balance in, in business and in life if we can craft, and it's not easy to do, by the way, of being grateful and hungry, mm-hmm. grateful and hungry. And so I'm deeply grateful for the privilege. It really is a privilege to serve and to, to be able to share ideas and make a difference in people's lives. I'm deeply grateful. I'm grateful for where I am in life. I'm grateful for my family and my health and my economic success. And so I don't take that lightly, seriously. I mean, I'm really deeply grateful and I feel satisfied in that context. Yeah. At the same time, I've never been more hungry. 
to grow, to push my own limits, to, to continue to see what I can do in the world, to leave a legacy, to drive impact, to drive economics. I'm not shy to say that. So as happy as I am with where things are, I've never been more driven. And that's the balance that I try to strike in all, all aspects of life is being both grateful and hungry. Very cool. I know one of the main things that you speak on is innovation. Is, is that something that you have always spoke on or how has what you've actually spoken about evolved over time? Yeah, a great question. And, and I think there's a lot to unpack there. I've always spoken on creativity and innovation and mm -hmm. I always have, and I pretty much always will. Now, a lot of people enter the business and they think they can speak about anything or they, right. they have 15 different topics. And that is a, not a successful approach to be blunt. What the market wants are experts that speak. And some, they want somebody who's a deep expert, like a world-class expert, six miles wide and an inch, or six miles deep and an inch wide, not the other way around. Yeah. So if someone says, hey, I speak on leadership and customer service and cybersecurity and work-life balance, like yeah. it's just too much. The market rejects that. So my strongest recommendation is for speakers, find out what they're really good at and passionate about, what they can be a world-renowned expert in, and just keep going deep in your body of work there, as opposed to trying to change with the wind or be all things to all people. And so like in my case, I've literally raised hundreds of millions of dollars of capital. I probably could speak on corporate finance. I've hired thousands of people. I could probably speak on HR. I've closed personally, you know, dozens of tens of millions of dollars of deals. I could probably be a sales speaker, but yeah. I'm not. And, and nor would I accept an engagement in that. I only speak on a topic that I really can, can look someone in the eye and know that I'm an expert in. And that's what I would encourage people to do. If you want to really grow your speaking business, be a thought leader, be an expert in something and go deep in it. I don't know if you know my buddy, you're from Missouri, you said is, is Shep Hyken, who, who's been speaking on customer service for 30 years. Yeah. He doesn't rest on his laurels. He's always coming up with new material. He literally writes every single day. He's studying, he's learning his craft. He keeps going deeper and deeper into one thing as opposed to trying to be broad. And deep wins, broad loses in the speaking industry. Very true. And just in entrepreneurship in general, you know, one of the things that we tell our speakers all the time is, is be the, the steakhouse and not the buffet. And so like you alluded to, like the speaker who says, I can, you know, what do you want me to speak on? Uh, uh, I can speak on anything. It just doesn't work. You know, so the more specific, the more narrow, the more niche. And it feels counterintuitive because we assume the more things we can speak on, the more audiences we can speak to, the more opportunities that may exist for us. And really that's not necessarily what event planners or organizations are looking for. It's the opposite, that I am the go-to authority on X rather than trying to be all things to all people. Now, one of the things that you also touched on is that today you have a lot of inbound inquiries that are generated from a variety of different sources, especially going back early on. I don't want to get to what's working for you today, but early on when you're trying to get some of that momentum going, speaking is very much a momentum business. And so you fast forward to the point where you have you know, a bunch of inbound inquiries and it becomes, it still work, but it's simpler than whenever you're getting started. But when you're getting started, you're trying to get that, that momentum going by pushing the boulder and just getting something going. What were you doing early on or what do you typically advise new speakers to do to, to generate business early on and find and book gigs? Well, there's the great saying that the more you speak, the more you speak. Yep. Uh, which true. is essentially that every time you're in front of an audience, that's an opportunity, it's a marketing opportunity, not just a delivery opportunity. And so I just tried to get in front of every audience that I could. I was first of all, building my craft and, and working on stage skills, but I, I leverage a lot of personal relationships. Hey, can I come speak for free at your, at your conference? Can, will you buy 50 books and I'll come, you know, give a free talk. And I just, I got a lot of stage time in. And I would encourage people early on to just really not only working on the craft as we talked about, but, but the more you're in front of audiences and moving the needle for people, the more you'll be requested to come speak at something else. The other thing that I did, I would recommend is engaging the bureau channel pretty early. Now there's a fine balance. You can only make a first impression once. So yep. don't engage the bureau channel. And for those that are new to this, there's something called speaker bureaus, which are, which control a large percent of the higher dollar uh, opportunities. And they essentially book gigs in exchange for a commission. 
you want to be what we would call bureau ready. And to be bureau ready, there's a handful of things just to be treated seriously that you need. You need a real speaker video. You need real professional photography. You need a website. You need some testimonials. So you certainly need some momentum to be treated seriously. That's the ante to play. But as soon as you're kind of bureau ready, I tried to engage that bureau channel early and invite them into, into the journey with me. And one of the things that I would do is early on, I'd get a paid offer. And I could just do the offer myself, but then I'd call up a bureau who maybe I knew or got introduced to and say, hey, yeah. how about I run the offer through you? You'll take a full commission on it. Hopefully you get a new client out of it. And now here's a chance for us to work together a little bit. Nice chance for like a, a date, but, but on, on my dime. That actually nurtured a lot of relationships that we still work on today. So I think it's just having the relentlessness early on to speak whenever you possibly can. Have no ego. Speak at the local community center, whatever you got to do. But the more you speak, ultimately, the more you'll speak. Yeah. Let's talk about the bureau thing for a second. What percentage of your business today is, is from bureaus? Yeah. So it started out very little. And over time, we built up those relationships. Today, about two thirds is through bureaus and the cool. other third is direct. Okay, cool. And just so you know, too, I'm just clarifying, there are two types of speakers as it relates to bureaus. There's an exclusive speaker and a yep. non-exclusive speaker. I'm a non-exclusive speaker. So right. instead of only working primarily with one bureau, I essentially work with all of them. And I have deep personal relationships with everyone from Washington Speakers Bureau to Harry Walker to Kepler to Premier Speakers in, in, in your neck of the woods and, yep. and Speak Inc. and Big Speak and, and everywhere in between. Yeah. These are deep friends of ours. Yeah. And so one of the challenges whenever it comes to bureaus is a lot of times speakers think, well, if I can just get in with a bureau, then I'm in, I'm good. And the reality is, is that, you know, a bureau may have a roster of a thousand or thousands of speakers and they may only be booking, you know, on a consistent basis, you know, less than a hundred of those speakers. Uh, and very much the, probably not even the 80, 20 rule, but more probably, you know, 95, five or, or 90, 10. So a lot of speakers think if I can just get in with a bureau, then I'm good. And one of the things that I've found is that bureaus aren't necessarily interested in you until you don't need them. And when you need a bureau, they're not interested in you. And so it's kind of this ebb and flow to the relationship. I know one of our things, our, our mutual friend, Sean Hanks, who's a president of Premier Speakers Bureau, he says that the bureaus don't create demand, they manage demand. So if you're, unless you're already getting booked, they're not going to start getting you booked necessarily. But if you're already getting booked, they can keep some of that momentum going. So at what point is the, like you said, you only make that first impression once. So at what point is the right point to approach speaker bureaus where, where you can be taken seriously versus them saying like, you're not ready for us or we're not ready for you or you, know, you need to build up a bit more of a track record and then we'll, you know, we're open to a conversation. So what is that kind of that sweet spot to, to talk with a bureau? You hit on an amazing point right there. Our job as speakers always is to create demand. So we should all think of our, our job, no matter if you're exclusive with the bureau, no matter if you work with 100 bureaus or zero, like we should always, demand creation is our responsibility as a speaker. Yeah. To a degree, our job is more about selling speeches than giving speeches. Yeah. You know, just to be super clear. So, so unlike this ridiculous myth that we might have, you get signed up with the speakers bureau, you're whisked off to fame and fortune. Right. That's not true. It's right. not like some Hollywood agent who just goes and books you some like multi-million dollar movie deal. Not at all. So even when you're working with bureaus today, I look at my responsibilities to, to create demand. And yes, working with the channel is part of that, but, but that's only a part, not, not a full reliance. Yeah. In terms of when to approach a bureau, I think especially if you can get introduced like through, through someone with a friendly introduction, it's nice to let them know who you are and let them know that they have sort of a name to follow, even if you're not ready to, to be fully working with them. I would say you should have a few things in place. Like I said, you know, have a reel, have right. a website, have a professional photography, have a speaking topic, you know, at least be somewhat prepared so you're treated seriously. But right. it's nice to, to start initiating a dialogue, even if you're not ready to, to work with them. 
Right. And I think that over time, they get to know you a little bit and build confidence in you. So by the time, it's, it might be two or three years later, that you're really up to that point where you're just not working with them. But now you're not a new face. You've had the chance to, to engage with them a little bit. I just think that your point, I can't reinforce it enough. Don't expect that just because someone puts you on their website, you're now going to be just booked nonstop. I mean, right. it, it takes the work on, for the speaker to go out there and create demand. Yeah, very much so. So one of the things that you I want to come back to that you touched on was today, there's a lot more inbound inquiries that are coming, which again, that tends to to just generate over time. And again, like we talked about, you build a lot of that momentum that that you're probably getting a lot of inquiries for things that you did three years ago that you barely even remember, but someone in the audience who was just an attendee is now all of a sudden on a committee or a board or, you know, in some type of executive role. And I remember this speaker, we need to have him back. And uh, so to build a lot of that over time, what are some of the best or, or what are some of the primary sources uh, outside of bureaus that you're getting leads today? In my previous business, I had a company, we built it to about 500 people before I sold it. I had a hundred person sales organization. And that was a hunting business. We would go call on big companies like Coca-Cola and Procter and & Gamble and we'd hunt down and win business. Yeah. So when I started speaking, I was like, yeah, let's go hunt down meeting planners. You know, I was a hunter. And it does, I don't think it works. I mean, it might work for some, it didn't work for me, I should say. I look at the speaking business as a fishing business. So in that case, the, our goal is how do we cast a lot of lines in the water how do we have delicious, irresistible bait at the end and get really good at reeling them in? But it's more of a, of a fishing business than a hunting business. So my strategy is, how do you create so many lines in the water with such delicious bait that, that you're getting a, a predictable share of nibbles every day? And so what we do is, um, you're right. So, so the more you speak, the more you speak. So you've, every time you're speaking, you're planting seeds. Yeah. Someone in the audience might run up to you and say, oh my God, we have a conference next week. Can you speak there? So that right. would be a very quick gestation period. Another seed though, to your point, might last a decade. I get calls all the time. Hey, I saw you speak a decade ago. I've always had you in the back of my mind and I'm in a new company. Can you come speak at our event? Yep. So those seeds, you know, have, have a variable gestation period, but they, they do come to life. Other ones though are maybe someone read your content. As a thought leader, hopefully we're all creating some forms of original content. That might be a traditional hardcover book. Awesome. It might be a YouTube channel. It might be a podcast. It might be a blog. There's a lot of ways to produce and distribute content these days. Yeah. But having a steady stream of content, I think, is a very good way to think about casting those lines in the water. That's another one. And if you have enough content coming out there and it's good quality, someone's going to nibble on it and say, oh, this person, our, our favorite podcast host would be awesome to speak at our event. Right, right. The other, other way to do that is, is you know, traditional marketing. You can, you can buy ads. You can do social media. There's so many different ways. The way we look at it is we don't discriminate. I was like, how can I cast as many lines in the water as possible? How can I have as most delicious bait as possible? In that case, we're going to get our fair share of nibbles. By the way, speaking just on the bureau front, there's two ways you get a deal from a bureau, just to be clear. We call them bureau push or client pull. So sometimes I'll get a, here's the way it works. Kristen Downey at Washington Speakers Bureau is on the phone with her client and says, oh my God, have you ever heard of Josh? No, you have to hire this guy. I'm telling you, I'd stake my career on it. You got to hire this guy. He's going to kill it for your event. So that would be a bureau push. And that's kind of how we think that bureaus recommend us to clients. Yeah. That happens sometimes. I think more often than not, it's the opposite. It's a client pull. So the client who's been searching around, reading books, listening to podcasts, calls up Kristen at Washington Speakers Bureau and says, hey, I'm really interested in this Josh guy. Can you book him for me? Yeah. Now, she still is an important part of the mix. She's not just an order taker. She might say, oh, I know him personally. He'd be great for your event. Or she might say this person's terrible. But a lot of times, bureau activity is still generated by you, the speaker. You're creating demand. The client now works with that bureau and requests you to speak at their event. Or they say, we'd like to consider this person among other possible candidates for this event. 
Very cool. I want to talk about just kind of as your business has evolved over the years, you, you mentioned that you're today a $35,000 keynote speaker. You don't go from zero to 35,000 overnight. That's obviously a, 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 it takes some time. You got a couple different checkpoints there. You also work with a lot of speakers as they make their evolutions in business. What are some of those checkpoints that you see for a speaker who's going, okay, I'm getting 5,000, 7,500, 10,000, and I want to, I want to become a $25,000 speaker. What are the criteria that you see that typically those speakers need to have in place in order to get from point A to point B? So you basically go from one fee level to the next by uh, having demand that gets you there. Mm -hmm. And so one mistake we see people make is let's say they had something really cool happen. They were on Good Morning America or in a movie or something. And all of a sudden they raise their fee super high. Problem is they can, they might get it today, but they can flame out if they're not really as good as the competitive set at that, at that level. Right. So we have a really deliberate pricing strategy, which I'd love to share with you. Yeah. First thing I would recommend is take a look at all the criteria under which someone would make a decision. So those criteria include your marketing polish, how good your message is, how good you are on stage, your fame level, you know, how out there in the community are you, the impact you're able to create, a handful of other criteria. And those, yeah. those are fairly obvious. So like if you looked at competitive speaker website, you'd see how do you stack up against them? So here's my suggestion. Make a list of the criteria under which you think someone might make a decision to hire you versus a competitive speaker. Next thing is, wherever you want to set your fee, let's say it's 15 grand, take a look at every other $15,000 speaker that you can and evaluate them numerically on those same criteria. Now I say other $15,000 speaker in your category. So if you speak on customer service, compare yourself to other $15,000 customer service speakers. Mm -hmm. And so you're really taking a direct head-to-head -head look, honest look, at your stuff, your video, your stage skills, your body of work, your fame, et cetera, and compare where you are to others at the category that you want to be at their fee. Now, here's the golden trick. Set your fee where you think you can win 70% of the time. It's a really deliberate number, and here's why. If you're out there and you only win 25% of the business, you will just sort of send a message that you're not the right fit for that fee range. Mm -hmm. So if a bureau recommends you 10 times in a row and they only win one of them, they're just going to stop recommending you because they don't think you can win at that level. Yeah. On the other hand, if they pitch you 10 times in a row and you win seven of the 10, now you're the hottest speaker they can think of and they're going to keep pushing you and create more and more demand. Yeah. So the, the suggestion that I have with great respect is take a look at a fee that you think is a realistic fee that you can be at today. Compare yourself to others in your exact same competitive set numerically objectively and set your fee where you think you can win 70% of the time. And by the way, get advice from your, your colleagues, other friends that you know in the business, you, me, others, et cetera. And that's what you do. So once you do that and you're winning at 70% at 15K and you start to build more and more demand, then you inch up to 20K or, or yeah. 17.5. And, and so I'd recommend do that exact same exercise at each increment that you go up, go up in small increments over time. So you're not all of a sudden pushing yourself into a competitive set where you're going to lose more than you win. When you're doing some of that competitive analysis, especially whenever it comes to determining other speakers' fees, there can be a lot of, of gray area around that because most, speak, most speakers don't publish their fees publicly. And then the numbers that we may throw out privately eh, kind of be like, I, I got paid that once. So therefore, that's what I'm going to communicate to my friends that that's what my fee is. So is there anything that you have used as a good barometer to say like, ah, here's a pretty good way to determine across the board when it's not published, when it's not listed, you know, a bureau may list it, but, uh, and here's what I've heard. Here's what I know that this event paid that speaker. Anything else that you would recommend that to determine what are other speakers actually getting paid in my space? Yeah, I would say that the bureau websites are wonderful. So most of them don't list an exact number, although some do, but they're generally a category. So yeah. they might say category three is from 15 to 20K. 
So you yep. kind of know that at least you're in the right zip code there. So if, you, if you're, again, customer service example, go to every bureau website you can find and type in customer service and look in that fee category. And pretty quickly, you'll start to see that, you know, the 10 that you, you kind of benchmark against the most. Yeah. And then if you know people in the speaking business, which could be you or me or anyone else, you know, or bureau friend, those people will be happy to look up and just tell you, oh, this person's fee is 17.5. This person's fee is 16. It's not that secretive. Yeah. Now, whether or not they negotiate or not, it almost doesn't matter. You just want to look at what's their, their, their standard issue rack rate fee. Yeah. yeah. Because that's what's going to be your standard issue rack rate fee. So if, again, if you want to be 15, just look at everybody else whose list price is 15K in that category, compare yourself against those and set your fee where you think you can win 70% of the time. Yeah. What, any recommendations in terms of how often you should be raising fee? Because there, there's, there are, again, like you mentioned, kind of some different variables that go into it. A lot of it may just come down to supply and demand. The more demand that there is and the less supply that there is, the more that you may be able to raise your fee. And so you may be making some you know, quick incremental raises over the course of a short period of time just based on demand. And then it may just kind of level out. You kind of find your sweet spot. But any advice that you'd give on, on raising your fee? One of the things you, you touched on was not raising it too quickly where to the point where you're pricing yourself out because uh, it's much easier to go up than it is to go back. So any thoughts on just like timelines for raising fees? Yeah. So the worst thing you can do, it's not fatal, but the worst thing you can do is go down in fee because it sends a bad message to the market. And everyone talks in the industry, meeting planners, uh, bureau people, et cetera, et cetera. So if you, if you go down in fee, you almost look like your damaged goods. You don't want to be like a, you know, yesterday B-level actor. You want to be like the, you know, the, right. the, the, the current. So I would say you're better off long-term going in smaller increments, more slowly than having to go backward. So one thing you should look at is the economic landscape. You know, right now we're in a pretty good, robust economy. It's not going to last forever. So yeah. if you are barely getting enough business at, at this at your current level in, 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 in today's dollars or today's market, you know, that would be a concern because what's going to happen if, if the economy tanks? Right. So I really recommend going up in smaller increments, doing it more slowly, getting lots of advice every time you do. Every time we raise a fee, I call everybody I know and ask their advice and their input. I test it you know, kind of see where, if I think it can work, I look at my competitive set, you know, be really specific and deliberate about those fee increases because you never want to go backwards. And the other thing is I really wouldn't recommend boosting up a fee in a big way unless you've got sufficient demand at your current level. Yeah. So if you're like, Hey, I'm at 15 and I really want to be doing, I'm making up a number 50 a year, but I'm only doing 30 a year. Yep. That's probably not the best time to do a fee increase because you don't have enough demand at 15. What makes you think you're going to have enough demand at 17.5 or something like that? Right. So the point where you want to increase is if you want to be doing 50 a year and you're at 15 and you have demand for 100, yep. you're like, yeah, that kind of makes sense because if I go up in fee, I might lose some demand, but I'm still going to hit my 50 target volume. How much do you think having a book or how well a book has done plays into what your fee should be? There's different thoughts behind it, but I'm curious yours. I think it's changed in the last few years. I think 10 years ago or 20 years ago, certainly, you know, having a, a book, ideally a best-selling book was the ante to play. Yeah. Today, I think it's one, but not the only way to drive credibility. I yeah. think it's a, you need to be a thought leader. You need to have a point of view. You need to be out there creating original content. To me, I think that's really important. But you may have the best listen podcast ever and haven't written a book. You know, like if Joe Rogan wanted to speak, right. I don't know if he's written a book or not. He'd speak all day, every day. Yeah. So whatever your channel is, is less important than the fact that you're creating high quality content that is successful. So if you're a podcaster, if you're a blogger, a video, YouTube star, I think that's okay. It doesn't have to be a traditional book. Yeah. If you have a book that's a bestseller, it doesn't hurt, certainly. Yeah. But really what you're doing is it's a credibility marker that's validating your thought leadership. And there are other ways to validate your thought leadership. One thing you can't do is have nothing. 
Right. You can't just be like, hey, I'm really good at negotiation skills. I've never written a book. I don't have a blog. I don't have a podcast. I've never printed a, a word on the topic, but you should hire me as a speaker. You're not going to be treated seriously. So you have to have some thought leadership that is demonstrating original thought and, and original content. Makes sense. Uh, Josh, I know that you work with a lot of speakers. So just to wrap up, the speakers that are interested in, in learning more about you, what you do, where can we go? Yeah. So if you want to learn about my speaking business, just my name, joshlinkner.com. We also have something that we've talked about called Three Ring Circus. It's the number three and then the word ring circus, a little playful words because, hey, after all, it's a circus out there where we work with emerging and experienced speakers to build their business in terms of both fee and volume. I know you do a lot of that work. And by the way, you do an awesome job and I totally support you and your program. But uh, for any listeners, if, they, if they're interested in our services too, they, they could check it out at threeringcircus.com. Awesome. Josh, thanks for the time, man. We appreciate it. Thanks, brother. Keep rocking. All right, there you go. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Josh Linkner. Again, I'd encourage you to check out his work, check out his stuff. Again, great, uh, great guy, great speaker, and a great entrepreneur. Also, like I mentioned to you, don't forget to check out the new book and pre-order The Successful Speaker. You can find that by going over to thespeakerlab.com slash book. Again, that is thespeakerlab.com slash book. There we've got a couple different pre-order bonuses that you'll get for pre-ordering the book. Book comes out in February 2020, so just uh, literally a few weeks away. Super excited about that, but we'd love to uh, love for you to pick up the book now, and we'll, we'll incentivize you to do so. So check out again over at thespeakerlab.com slash book. Also, if you order a certain number of copies, you can get a free one-on-one coaching call with me. So all the information, again, is over there at thespeakerlab.com slash book. All right, my friends, that wraps up today's episode. We'll catch you next time. You're awesome.